Well, I'll start with this. Standing before a graduating class of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed 20-somethings in 2005, the late American author David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address. And in this commencement address, he acknowledged a deeply human reality. He, he, He diagnosed a deeply human problem when he said that we were made to worship. To be clear, this is not original to Wallace, even if you might think it is. Wallace isn't a Christian, and he's not speaking to Christians. He's speaking to a a class of college graduates, diplomas in hands and big dreams in their hearts. But he hits on something deeply profound. He he says this, in the day-to-day, remember, not a Christian, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. The reason he explains, the, the, the reason so many of us worship something or someone transcendent, basically, is because we know that everything has the potential to, to eat us alive. This is what he's saying. And I want us to keep tracking. Remember, not a Christian. I want to be very careful about that. He keeps going and he describes this. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. In his own way, Wallace is listing example after example of what we Christians would call an idol. He he exposes the danger that is built into each object of worship, almost like there's a trigger plate that's built into each of them, a danger that only arises when we try to put our weight of worship on these objects. He finishes this section in his commencement address saying this, the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Default settings. Wallace, unknowingly, is pinpointing a deeply biblical truth. We were made to worship. Everybody worships, whether we are conscious of it or not. Our hearts are drawn to something in worship. We all give our lives to someone or something And when it is anything other than God, these objects of worship become weapons of mass destruction. Our hearts enthrone objects or people or philosophies that will inevitably disintegrate under the pressure of sovereignty, taking everything around them with them. Because that throne was never meant for them. That throne, our worship, is meant for God and God alone, the creator king over all. David Wallace parrots the truth that the Bible spends 66 books explaining everybody worships because we were made to worship. The question has never been, are you worshiping? The question has always been, who are you worshiping? This morning, we continue our series called Dear Church, a pastor's letter to the church with a parable about worship. We've been in this series for a few weeks now, looking at Jesus' parable in the Gospel of Luke to illustrate what your pastors pray for you, what what I pray for you as our familia here, what, what the true shepherd of God's people, Jesus, wants for his people. In these parables, Jesus teaches kingdom characteristics for his kingdom people. And this is what I'm praying for you as your pastor. 
The first parable, if you might remember, the sower and the seeds draws a line in the sand defining kingdom people as those who listen to and obey the message of the kingdom. The revelation of our king, the words of Jesus in the entire Bible. Jesus called us through that story to not only hear the word, but to hold on to it, to be patient and persevere in obeying it, to produce what should come from the message of the kingdom, kingdom lives marked by the kingdom of gospel. And so the second parable we looked at established the joy of these kind of lives, of a king who, who, whenever he finds and rescues lost people, no matter what kind of loss they are, rejoices. The joy of the king of repentance that should permeate the entire kingdom, all of God's kingdom citizens, with the same joy whenever sinners, just as lost as we were, turn from sin, repent, and turn back to God. We are people of the word, we are people of repentance and joy, and now our parable this morning defines us as people of worship, of gratitude and love expressed in, in might I say, even extravagant worship. Our parable is located right in the middle of a surprising, offensive, beautiful, and bold expression of worship. An extravagant display of humility, love, and gratitude that's contrasted with an extravagant display of arrogance, disgust, and ingratitude. And so I've spent enough time talking before getting to the Word of God, and so I want us to step into this story together. I want to prep you before we read it, and we're going to be in Luke 7 this morning starting in verse 36, and if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay, we'll have it up on the screen. You can also grab a Bible in the cart on the back. If you never owned a Bible, take one of those. We bought them for you. I'll write your name in it just so that you know we bought it for you. Those are our gifts to you. And if you're joining us online, I do want to say, not just welcome and we're glad you're here, but I do want you to join us in reading God's Word. So if you have your Bible near, pick it up, stand up, and if you would, all of us stand up for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Luke 7, 36, going all the way to verse 50. Here we go. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he, meaning Jesus, went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus starts speaking. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged it correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
Well, before we begin our hike through this story, I want to give you our itinerary. I want to lay out the landmarks so that you know where we're going to be tracking so you can see where we're going. In this text, there are four questions that come out of the text that lay out the path of what Jesus wants us to do, what he's doing as he continues to establish his kingdom people. And so as he builds out this definition of what it means to be part of the his kingdom. These are the questions that come out of the text, and this is how we're going to be walking through it. The first question, who is touching him? The second question, who will love him more? The third, do you see this woman? And the fourth, who is this who forgives sins? And each question will mark out our path towards what it means to be people of his kingdom, people of worship, people that are captivated by the way of the king towards the the main idea of this sermon, if you will, a a way that kingdom people should know and live and breathe. This is the destination of this journey this morning, so I'll say it and I'll repeat it multiple times throughout this morning. The main idea of this sermon is the reality that God's extravagant grace produces extravagant love expressed in worship. God's extravagant grace produces extravagant love expressed in worship. Anyone who has experienced the extravagant grace of God in Christ loves God and loves who God loves with a love that is just as extravagant. And that love is seen in our worship, in all of our worship, from singing and praying and sitting under God's word together on Sunday mornings to the devotion that we show Jesus day in and day out because worship is not confined to the hour that you spend together, hour and a half if you're at TVC, at in worship on a Sunday morning. God's extravagant grace produces extravagant love expressed in worship. And the first landmark towards that main point is our first question, who is touching him? Who in the world has the nerve to presume a relationship with this very important public teacher like Jesus by actually getting close enough to touch him? Does she even know who this is? Our text opens up in verse 36 with this line, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, if you've been reading the Bible for any sort of time, alarm bells might be ringing for you right now, right? You know the Pharisees are not buddy-buddy with Jesus, at least not most of them. This is a group of religious leaders who held power in this community and who by the end of each of the accounts of Jesus' life are exercising this power and working together to have Jesus executed by the state. That's where the story is going. But when we step into Luke 7, that's not where we are You see, here at this point in Jesus' life, the Pharisees are still sort of unsure of what to do with Jesus. They've had a few run-ins with him. They've started to become a little suspicious, but, but murder by empire has yet to cross their minds. So when this Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner, we might feel some of the tension. We might be cautious, but we're not getting ready for an ambush. At least we're not getting ready for Jesus to be ambushed. What we might find by the end of the story is that Jesus is the one who came to do the ambushing. An ambush of God's conviction, grace, and love. So Jesus accepts the Pharisee's invitation because he's the kind of God who seeks and saves the lost, no matter what kind of lost they are, even if those lost people will someday plan to kill him because he loves them. Jesus shows up for dinner, and while they were eating, the text tells us that a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. A woman, uninvited, unnamed, but certainly known, known as a sinner. She finds out that Jesus is nearby. She had heard the the reports of this teacher circulating. She had been following the rumors of a man who, the text will say earlier in the past six chapters, who exorcised demons, who healed diseases, who was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and most importantly, was preaching the forgiveness of sins. Sins like hers 
Sins that had been following her around like bad credit. Sins that had labeled her like, like a criminal record, if you will. Sins that named her other in the eyes of her community, at least in the eyes of those who considered themselves righteous, separated from God and from her neighbors. She packs up her most expensive jar of perfume and plans something she knows is not acceptable. Something that breaks every rule of polite company. Something that might get her stopped at the door or thrown out the back. Something that might create even more distance between her and her neighbors, but something that she knew would communicate the distance she felt God had begun to erase in Jesus. Something she had to do because she owed her life to Jesus. Because she believed. She packs up, makes her way to the house. She swallows hard, straightens up, walks into the house like she's supposed to be there, and she finds herself all of a sudden within inches of the sin forgiver, the disease healer, the demon exorciser. And her plan all of a sudden is overcome by this emotional waterfall that translates gratitude into tears. The text tells us that she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. The flood of tears as she falls at his feet, fall like she'd never seen before. And and she begins to wet his feet with her tears. She's covered in gratitude, filled with love. She wipes his feet with her hair. She kissed his feet. She, She pours perfume on them. The text never records that she ever said a word. She didn't have to. In this moment, where the room and every guest is holding their breath, she communicates something holy, something sacred. Something that captivates this dinner party. She expresses incredible humility, deep honor, and overwhelming gratitude to Jesus in this moment. Her act of worship, because that is what it is, is powerful in its extravagance as much as in its boldness. What she is doing required guts. To walk into that room, she knew what people thought of her, and yet she walks into this room that's filled not just with neighbors, but with these, these, these men of God, these religious leaders that, that express their holiness precisely by not associating with her. And here she is, associating. Every step of her worship is described by Luke in this scene in detail, almost like it's part of the point of what she's doing, that, that how long she is doing it. And as the clock continues to witness this worship, the room continues to stretch thin with tension. She, she goes beyond the oil that's normal and, and pours expensive perfume in between her tears. She breaks social protocol and, and fill, flirts with the edge of social norms almost. Kissing Jesus' feet, pouring perfume on his feet, letting down her hair to wipe his feet. If it weren't for her tears, people might get the wrong idea. And at least someone did. The Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. The host of our dinner party finally speaks up. Well, he doesn't actually speak up. He kind of mumbles under his breath. He, he talks to himself and, and questions Jesus' credentials. I mean, he thought he was inviting some important rabbi, a prophet even, to engage in stimulating conversation, to maybe clear up some of the suspicions that his colleagues had, but that does not appear to be the case anymore. As this obscenity unfolds before this Pharisee, he questions his invitation by questioning Jesus low enough that Jesus won't hear him. At least, he thinks Jesus won't hear him. See, for Pharisees, the situation that was happening in the middle of this dinner party was not just repulsive because it offended their social sensibilities, what they believed to be polite company. It was repulsive to them because of Jesus' claim 
Jesus is calm, and Jesus is continuous contact with something unclean. One rabbi describes this attitude towards uncleanness by defining it as worse than bloodshed. The anxiety about an unclean person entering his house, almost getting near him, and now laying hands, hair, and lips on this teacher was setting off all kinds of alarms in this Pharisee's head. I'll illustrate it like this. This is uh, the religious version of when my girls try to touch me or hug me or kiss me after dinner. Now, if you know me, you know that when my girls might be coming at me with covered in pizza sauce and uh, grape jelly and caked in peanut butter, that their lovely little hands, smiling faces to come show me their love, I have to matrix my way out of their reach, grab a wipe, clean them down, and then they can show me love. And I know that's all on me. I have a thing. My wife is, is counseling me through it. But imagine that feeling multiplied by the culture you were raised in. Add in the identity you have built for yourself as clean and you have some idea of the religious mathematics that this mumbling Pharisee is working through. Not just for himself, but now it's about Jesus. I mean, if Jesus was a prophet, there's absolutely no way he would tolerate what's happening in him. He would know who's touching him. His radar for sinners and evasive maneuvers would be as updated as this Pharisee's. In uh, a book that uh, really, I think, uh, I'm going to say changed my life. That feels a little dramatic, but it's kind of true. This past year, called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, this pastor named Dane Ortland, he, he zeroes in on the issue of this Pharisaic heart and, and mumbles, that, that, this Pharisaic heart that mumbles about Jesus' welcome of sinners when he writes this. He says that Jesus is friend of sinners, or Jesus is friend to sinners, is only contemptible to those who feel themselves not to be in that category. This is what's happening here is this woman worships with courage and this man whispers in contempt. At a fundamental level, the heart of the Pharisee, a heart that did not stay locked in first century Israel, it beats in 21st century Streamwood. I'll, I'll tell you now, even today, this heart believes that Jesus associates with the wrong kind of people. The kind of people that would spread their contamination to Jesus and to his people. And yet over and over again, Jesus shows his heart as for, not against, sinners. Over and over again, he rebukes this exclusive heart in his own people. You see, if you read through the Gospels, you realize that Jesus is not afraid that people are going to contaminate him by sin, that it would somehow pollute him. He knew that true holiness was much more powerful, and might I even say in our day and age, more contagious than sin. Jesus was not afraid of sin because he loved people. He knew what people were worth because he made them with that worth. He made them in his own image. But the heart of the Pharisee defines the worth of people by the weight of their sin. It otherizes them with labels like sinner, all the while missing it about their own sin before God. No, Mr. Pharisee, the Son of God knows exactly who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, just like he knows exactly who is judging him and what kind of man you are. Who is touching him? A sinner. A sinner who not only has acknowledged her sin before God, but has received forgiveness, expresses her gratitude and love. An image bearer, once broken, now being restored, and living out the reality that God's extravagant grace produces extravagant love expressed in worship. The question of who is touching him does not result in Jesus being embarrassed at at him making such a big mistake, misreading the situation, now having to perform a bunch of cleansing rituals to get back to being the important teacher everyone thinks he is. No, our first question leads to the second question for Jesus. Who will love him more? A question that reminds us, the Pharisees, and this entire dinner party 
who is the real righteous teacher in the room. Mumbling under his breath, this Pharisee is still trying to figure out what's happening. And verse 40 says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. (laughs) He heard me. Jesus uses the Pharisee's name for the first time. Simon. Now he knows he's in trouble, right? He straightens up like the teacher just caught him passing notes in class. And he says, you know how you do when you get caught in class? Tell me, teacher, of course I was listening. I know everything that you were talking about. There's respect in his tone, maybe, even if he no longer believes he can use the term that everyone else is using, prophet. And all of a sudden, his respect starts to turn into curiosity as Jesus weaves together a parabolic world for everyone in the room because he's about to make a point. And so he tells a story. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Jesus' parable is locked and loaded with a deeper message than what is on the surface, and you can almost hear the Star Wars admiral in the background saying, it's a trap, because it is. Remember what we learned about parables. These stories are not just fun stories to entertain. They're powerful stories demanding a response, and this short parable is no different. In fact, Jesus actually demands a response by finishing his story with a question. A question that takes all the details of this story and brings them to bear on the reality of this particular moment. The story talks about two people in debt to a certain moneylender, the same moneylender. Their debts are different. One owes ten times the amount of the other. But in this parabolic world, what's the same is that neither of them can pay it back. The natural next step in our real world would be jail or some kind of payment plan or some way of satisfying this moneylender. But that's not what happens in this hypothetical world. Instead, the moneylender forgives both debts straight up, no payment plan the small and the large debt. But Jesus is not done making his point, right? It's not just about forgiveness. It's about what the forgiveness generates. So he asks a question, who will love him more? Which is kind of a weird question to ask, right? It's the equivalent of me showing up at my bank with chocolates and flowers for my account manager. I don't love my banker. Forgive me for any bankers that are in the room. But that's this parable, and it's supposed to be weird, and weird provokes thought, and so Jesus presses the issue. Who will love him more, Simon? And so Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, A plus. You've judged correctly, Jesus says. I suppose, Simon says, almost like the answer is so obvious, because it kind of is, and he knows that something else is coming. Maybe Simon has heard about Jesus' reputation of making points or examples with strategic stories. One writer says that in his answer, Simon, the Pharisee, is is setting himself up to be wounded from behind. He walked right into Jesus' point. Jesus' repentance-inducing point. Who will love him more? Well, obviously the one who has been forgiven more. And as the parabolic world starts to fade, we begin to see the points of analogy even before Jesus gets to this woman. God, the money lender lender who cancels or forgives debts or sins. This woman who lived a sinful life who appears to to owe more, while Simon the Pharisee appears to owe less. I say appears for a very particular reason. To his credit, Simon actually uh, answers Jesus instead of ducking him or evading him or or pleading the fifth, which some other Pharisees had done in some of Jesus' very strategic questions. On the heels of a potentially volatile situation that has been forming in this dinner party, this story poses a very volatile question. Who will love him more? 
A question that seeks to explain how God's extravagant grace produces extravagant love expressed in worship. How God's grace to this particular woman produced such love that it brought her before Jesus in what could only be described as worship. This question seeks to explain by provoking us to self-reflection, to introspection, to curiosity. But Jesus isn't even done provoking curiosity here. He affirms Simon's answer even as he turns to the woman whose weeping has been in the background of his parable this whole time. And he asks a piercing question, and this is our third landmark. Do you see this woman? Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Look at her, Simon. I mean, really look at her. Look past her awful life. Look past society's categorization of her. Look past her reputation. Do you actually see her, Simon? The twist of this parable doesn't end with the question of who will love him more. It continues into this other provocative question. Do you see this woman? Jesus is forcing the issue. He wants this powerful religious leader to learn a kingdom lesson from this apparently powerless sinful woman. But to be more accurate, Jesus wants this grace-deficient, law-constrained image bearer to learn a kingdom lesson from this grace-filled, gospel-transformed image bearer. Compassion is spilling out of Jesus, not just for her, but for him as well. What his sin is actually keeping him from seeing. This woman and who she actually is. What she actually needs and who God made her to be. See, this question is not just for Simon the Pharisee thousands of years ago. This question hits home with us this morning right here in this family of believers. Do we actually see people? Do we actually see ourselves Do we have a true understanding of who we are before God? Debtors who owe a debt we cannot pay. Forgiven debtors who have been forgiven by grace and grace alone. This story is not about comparing debts. It's not a a, a free pass for you to walk in this place and be like, your debt is ten times more of mine. God needs to forgive you more. It's realizing that all of us owe an incredible amount and none of us can pay it back. The problem is that some of us think we owe less to God than others. Which means we also need a true understanding of who others are before God. Who others are in comparison to us. They, like us, are also debtors. Potentially forgiven debtors. And the disrespect and contempt of the heart of the Pharisee has no place in God's kingdom. Has no place here at TVC. The superiority that Christians so often have when confronted by sins we have arbitrarily defined as worse than other sins has absolutely no place in God's kingdom. Misunderstanding who we are before God and who we are in relation to others distorts our worship at its core because we think that we had to be forgiven somehow less than other people. That, that, that God is, is, should be grateful to have us on his team. That we are first string and some other people are just the practice squad. Do we see people? Do we see ourselves? Do we understand at the depth of our being, that we are sinners saved by grace? Do we see others as sinners who can be saved by grace? But even in the middle of this, Jesus is only getting started with this question. His eyes are locked with this woman in love and grace, and he continues to challenge the heart of the Pharisee. Notice that the text says, he looks at her, but she's talking to Simon. I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You, Simon, did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus hits point after point after point to establish a contrast. Jesus' goal here is not to belittle Simon's gifts of hospitality. He's trying to amplify her gift of worship. You see, Simon is not obligated to wash Jesus' feet, to kiss cheeks, or anoint heads. The cultural expectation in this moment is that water would be provided at the door for guests for them to wash their own feet. That's it. That's minimum. A kiss isn't even expected. It would be culturally appropriate, but it's not expected. Anointing would have been over the top, period, even if it was just oil. Simon is not disrespecting Jesus here. It's just that his hospitality is not good as it could be. It's not just the backhanded experience he's giving Jesus. But when she shows up, when she shows Jesus the kind of love that she shows him, the contrast is glaring. Simon did very little to express any kind of care for Jesus. And she was over-the-top extravagant, even, in the way that she cared for Jesus. Her extravagant love testifies to another reality, God's extravagant grace. Jesus concludes his lesson in verse 47. Look at the text by drawing everyone together and saying, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. The love she has shown Jesus is crystal clear evidence of her forgiveness. And Simon's little to no love seems to be crystal clear evidence that he has missed it on what truly makes someone clean before God. Forgiveness of sin. All kinds of sin. Sin that no matter what it is separates us from a holy God. A good father who loves his children. A creator king who is making everything right and will one day fully restore everything that has been broken by sin. Forgiveness from this God. Forgiveness of a debt that is unpayable even by Pharisees who think they are perfect. Later in the New Testament of 1 Peter 4.8, Jesus calls us to love each other deeply, but he explains why. He says, love covers over a multitude of sins. The love that has its fingerprints all over this scene affirms the beauty of this woman's worship, even as it confronts the ugliness of this man's heart. And yet the love of God is able to cover, take care of, erase and restore all kinds of sins. The sin of a woman living a sinful lifestyle and the sin of a Pharisee living his own sinful lifestyle. At this dinner party, we, along with Simon, are being challenged to reconsider our posture before God. We like to think we are the person with the smaller debt, but that's only because we have misunderstood God. We have misread the situation. We have miscalculated our debt. But this text also challenges us to reconsider our posture before people like this woman and the Jesus that stands between us and them. No one is righteous. No, not one, Romans says, except for the one who came and took on flesh, Jesus Christ. And we all need the compassion of God in order to be righteous. He needs to be compassionate to us in order for us to become righteous. But the reverse is also true. True righteousness is only true if it is truly compassionate. Forgiveness, that one author describes as grace with responsibility, is something that generates action. God forgives anyone who comes to him in faith and repentance. Faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and repentance from the sin that put Jesus on that cross. Our sin that separates us from God and from each other. But forgiveness, if it is truly received, must come out in extravagant gratitude and extravagant love. In other words, God's extravagant grace produces extravagant love that's expressed in worship. Jesus knows exactly who is touching him, a sinner who has experienced grace. 
And he is drawing Simon into that same personal experience of the only one who could even save Simon. Who will love him more is the question he poses. And it's really, it's, you need to realize that only the people who actually see that they need grace, how much they need grace, and come to Jesus to find that grace, can truly love Jesus. And this love changes everything for us. It enables us to see people as they truly are. Images, bearers that have been broken by and guilty of sin in need of restoration and repentance. And yet, like typical Jesus, he still won't leave well enough alone. He puts an exclamation mark at the end of the scene and it generates our final question in this text. Who is this who forgives sins? Now, I've kind of showed my cards already talking about the gospel over and over and over and over again. But there's something powerful about these final three verses in our scene. And I don't want us to miss it. Who is this who forgives sins? It is God himself come to us in the flesh in order to save us from ourselves and from our sin. Look at verse 48. Jesus puts a period on his words to Simon, but his eyes haven't gone anywhere. They're still locked in love and grace with this woman, this woman who, who clearly marked herself out as his. And so Jesus does the same and clearly marks him out as hers. Verse 48, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She has expressed an incredible amount of love in this moment. We might even say extravagant love. And Jesus has just told Simon that there is this direct relationship between love and forgiveness. Love does not secure forgiveness. I'm going to be theologically accurate here when we're in this story. As if we could somehow rack up enough forgiveness points when we're especially loving to God and to others through our worship. But love certainly testifies that forgiveness has been secured. This parable and even the scene do not go into all the details about salvation and how faith and forgiveness and repentance work. They're not trying to do everything. But what it does do, what it does center is the source of forgiveness, Jesus Christ, as well as the effects of that forgiveness, extravagant love. This text interweaves love and forgiveness, faith and worship in a way that rejects any idea that they could be separate. That one could somehow be present without the other. Jesus challenges the thought that any kind of faith can be present without an understanding of grace, extravagant grace, and an outpouring of extravagant love. And the way Jesus makes this challenge is by showing his authority in this moment. His authority as the Son of God to forgive sins. You see, Jesus takes Simon's complaint about Jesus' credentials as a prophet and raises the stakes on him. He blows right past prophet and identifies himself as the God of the universe when he says, your sins are forgiven. But for Jesus, this isn't just some show. His eyes are still locked with this woman's eyes because he really and truly sees her and knows what she most fundamentally needs, forgiveness. Again, in Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland expresses the mission of Jesus as we see it here. He writes this, Jesus walked the earth, rehumanizing the dehumanized and cleansing the unclean. He spread the good contagion of his cleansing mercy. In this moment, Jesus has restored her humanity. He, ha he offers her forgiveness, secures peace, and does it in front of everybody. Not just to prove some point, but so that everyone would know that he is the one that you come to for forgiveness, for true peace, for salvation. That she is forgiven by God, no longer marked as an unclean sinner, and it is all because of God's grace. But grace doesn't stop at first base. Grace rounds the bases, transforming everything, generating the love of gratitude and restoring relationship, demanding a changed life all the way home. 
God's extravagant grace produces extravagant love expressed in worship. Our love is evidence of, not the determining factor of, our salvation. Love that shows that we know how much we have been forgiven, that we have humbly received his forgiveness, and that we can never, ever thank God enough for what he has done for us in Christ. The crowd in this scene complains, who is this who even forgives sins? But this morning, the question confronts us, who is this Jesus Do we believe he is who he says he is? Do we see ourselves as he sees us, dead in sin but made in his image and able to be restored? Do we see others as he sees them, with compassion and with love? Will we love him more because we know just how much he has forgiven us? This morning, my prayer for us as God's people located in this outpost of new creation life out here in Streamwood is that we would deeply and truly worship like we're forgiven. Like we know that we're forgiven. That we would sing and pray and sit under God's word with hunger and gratitude and love. That we would engage with him daily in his word and in prayer and in all the ways that shape us as people who ask constantly and consistently how the gospel changes the way that we think, that we act, that we react. Now I haven't even clarified this to this point, but I'm not saying you need to be an emotional wreck every time you show up on Sunday. What I am saying is that all of us, Everything in us, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our emotions, our logic, our our habits, our words, our relationships, and our callings in life, and everything else that I haven't thought of, all of these are opportunities for worship, for gratitude, for expressing our love to God. Jesus knew precisely who touched him when this woman showed up to worship. And this morning, he knows precisely who is trying to touch him here this morning, who is trying to reach out to him this morning. And by the Spirit of God, he not only locks eyes with us in love, he also reaches out in comfort and grace. He has not left us alone. He has not left you alone. If you know you've been forgiven, then my prayer for you is that you would show it. That you would show that you have experienced the extravagant grace of God in Christ in your worship. In your extravagant love expressed in your worship. That is my prayer for us as a family of believers here, out here in Streamwood. And like my normal M.O., I want us to pray together that this might be so. Together. Would you pray with me? Gracious and compassionate God, this morning we come before you in grateful worship. We recognize how deep we were in the hole. How much our sin had done to us. How much we had done by our own sin. Apart from you, we had no hope. But this morning we worship We sing and we pray and we receive your word because like we're about to sing, we know that our debt is paid in full. That by the precious love that our Jesus spilled, the curse of sin has no hold on us. We believe that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and that whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. And so we worship this morning because we are free. Because you have freed us from our sin. Because we are eternally and extravagantly grateful. Would you shape us as people who worship? Your kingdom people who worship like we're forgiven. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.